Please open your Bibles to the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. The notes are in the insert. If you don't have a Bible, the text is on the back of the insert. This morning, as we go through Titus, we are moving into the second of four household distinctions in chapter two. We'll sort of review a little bit of where we've come from and where we are going as we look at women, women of the word, women of the word. And really all of chapter two functions as a bookend, a literary unit. It's bookended at the beginning and at the end by a command to teach. Titus 2, 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2, 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then in chapter 3 starts a new topic. Remind them to, and then he moves on. And so between verses 1 and verses 15 is the content that Paul is so stressing that Titus teach. And to go back even further, if you, if you go back to chapter 1 of Titus, remember Paul left Titus in Crete, where Paul had apparently done missionary work, church planting work. The church was in its formative state. There were no elders yet. And so Paul leaves Titus behind. He goes on, on his journey with the rest of his missionary team. And he tells us in verse 5 of chapter 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So Titus's job as Paul's representative, he's not a pastor in any sort of traditional sense. Really, he's Paul's man on the spot. He's Paul's arm and legs. He's a proxy apostle, if you will. Um, part of the reason why this letter is written is to authorize him to do what he's doing Paul greets the entire church at the end of the letter, so we know this was meant for public viewing and not just private correspondence, is for Titus to set in order the things that were out of order, the things that were lacking. You've got this newly formed church, doesn't have deacons, doesn't have elders, doesn't know a lot about the faith, and Titus is left behind sort of as a midwife or a nurse taking this newly birthed child and growing it up. And that's what he's doing. And so the first order of business for strengthening what was lacking was the appointing of elders. We looked at that. And now in chapter 2, the second thing Paul wants Titus to do is to teach. To teach sound doctrine. Sound doctrine that leads to sound living. That's sort of the overall title for our messages in, in chapter 2 is sound doctrine and sound living. It's, it's striking that Paul says in chapter 2 verse 1, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then, rather than listing a bunch of doctrinal content, he goes on to lift a bunch of lifestyle content. He's assuming the connection between what is taught and what is lived. Now, he does have straight doctrinal foundation. That comes in verses 11 through 14. And so, from verses 2 to 10, what Paul does is deal one by one with the various relationships in the church, the various people in the church. He deals with older men. We saw that last week. This week, he's going to speak to the older and younger women. Then he's going to speak to younger men. Then he's going to speak to Titus. And then he's going to address slaves. And we're to go through those categories one by one. And so this week, the focus is on women of the word. 
And I just want to make one or two preparatory remarks that if you're a man, this doesn't mean you get to fall asleep now. Um, it doesn't. This is, a, this is instruction for the whole congregation. And one of the things we're going to see is the emphasis on discipleship. That even if you're not, this instruction isn't immediately and directly to you, you can encourage others, you can instruct others, you can exhort others in what God would have them do. So it's not that each category in this church sort of listens up when it's their turn and the rest of the time you know, plays angry birds. Um, no, I know it's your Bible on your iPhone. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> But, but, it's, of course it's the Bible. Of course it's the Bible. Um, but rather, this is instruction for all of us. Paul didn't write five different letters to the five different groups. He wanted the whole body to hear his instruction for older men. He wanted the whole body to hear his instruction for the women. He wanted the whole body to hear his instruction from younger men. So yes, there will be a particular emphasis today for the women here. One other word. In case you haven't noticed, I am not a woman. And, and that makes this somewhat difficult, right? I'm giving instruction to, to women. And, and I, I predict some of this, especially as we get to the second half of this message, will be challenging. It certainly will be countercultural. So just two things. One, everyone's going to get their turn. And two, it, it's not me the authority, it's God's word the authority. And so as I try to unpack what God has to say, to the women here, um, weigh what I say against the text. If the text says it, then let it bind your conscience. Let it instruct your thinking. Let it order your footsteps. And if, and if it does not, then ignore it. If it's just my own opinion, my own thoughts. So that said, as a way of preface, let's dive in in three points. Women of the Word. First, we're going to look at teach the older women to be. Teach the older women to be. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, that likewise there references all the way back to verse 1. What, what Paul is telling Titus is, in the same way that you taught the older men, I want you to teach the older women. And we can take this for granted, but Paul is assuming equality here. And in many stratas in Paul's day, women were not taught. But he wants Titus not only teaching the, the men, but he wants Titus teaching the women. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear the women are in the worship service. They're being instructed as well. And in Paul's day, this is somewhat progressive thinking. I only say that up front because we're going to get some parts in this that might seem regressive. I want to remind you that Paul's actually giving women far more freedom, far more respect, far more dignity than anything in his culture as he instructs Titus not just to be teaching the men, but to teach the women likewise in the same way. And he lists four characteristics that need to dominate the older women, just as he dealt with the older men. And, and I think it's also important that he starts with the older in the midst, those who've been walking with the Lord longer, those who have more wisdom, those who have more um, experience. It is incumbent upon us, upon them, to lead the way, to show the younger generation what godliness looks like, to show the younger generation what it looks like to be a man or woman of God. And so we're going to look at these four character qualities that Paul is instructing Titus, God is instructing us to be modeling. And so before we dive into this, I just want to pause and ask, especially the women here, to be thinking what ambitions you have for your life? just want you to stop and think. If you had a checklist, if you had your bucket list, 
so to speak, of the things you wanted to achieve, the things you wanted to accomplish, the, the person you wanted to be when you grew up, when you grow up. What would be on that list? So why don't you stop and think with that carefully? Because I'm going to suggest to you that this is God's list. This is, this is the target on the wall that God wants all of the women aiming at. This is the target on the wall that God wants all the men praying and encouraging the women to aim at. This is, this is what you want to be when you grow up. This should be what you want to be when you grow up. And there are other good things that you can have on your list of things you want to achieve and do, but I just want to encourage you to make sure these four things, especially, are at the top of your to-do list. So we'll start in reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. Literally, priestess-like conduct. Um, it's, it's the picture of a priest or priestess conducting themselves in a temple. How seriously they would take that. How um, reverently they would do that. The concept is, is befitting or corresponding to or appropriate to a servant of the Lord. And I want to just stop there and, and say this is an important point to make. That everything that follows assumes the women that Titus is teaching, assumes the women who are listening to this are justified by faith, are Christians, are saved. Because the very first thing is act appropriately. You claim to be a daughter of God. You claim to be part of that holy nation of priests. Act like one. And if you miss that, this and everything that follows becomes moralism. It just becomes some rules. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that. And you'll be a good little boy or girl. And, and it's not important not to miss this. Paul is assuming, and that first character quality assumes a relationship with Christ. It assumes that, that you have come to the realization that you are a sinner, and it assumes that you have recognized that there is nothing in you, no good that you can do, no good deed, no work, no ritual that can earn you credit with God. And so you look to his son who died on the cross for your sins, he was raised on the third day. We sang about that on the cross as Jesus died. God's wrath was satisfied. What are, you, what are you trusting in to satisfy God's anger? Are you trusting in your good works or are you trusting in Christ? And that you've received this by faith and you've, you're united to him by a living faith, a faith that depends upon him, a faith that looks to him, a faith that follows him. That, that's got to be the starting point of biblical womanhood being women of the word. You can't skip over that step and do the rest of the things on the list. You'll have no power to obey, and you'll either become self-righteous, thinking you've done it, or you'll become despairing, unable to do it. So I just want to start right here. This, this word, this instruction is for women of faith, women who know Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, deal with that. And while I'm talking, you can just sort of Deal with that while I'm doing the rest of this message because until you know Jesus Christ by faith, the rest of this will be impossible um, and, and will, will not be something you need to skip over to do. You need to know Christ by faith first and foremost. You gotta start there. So reverent behavior. And really the next two contrast that priestess-like behavior. He says, not slanderers. Really the word here is devils, diablo. Used 34 times in the New Testament to speak of the devil himself. The devil is, of course, the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren. So there's a play on words. You need to behave in a priestess-like way, not like a devil. And the, the picture here, and especially in that culture, is women, 
And we'll get to this in a little bit, but women prior to the advent of um, the Industrial Revolution, prior to 50, even 50 or 60 years ago, were largely at home. Uh, marriages generally produced children, and where there was children every couple of years, generally the women were staying at home. And what we're going to see is evident is that Paul is concerned with what these women working in the homes are doing. And one of the things he doesn't want them to do is be slanderers. If you turn back to uh, 1 Timothy 5, Paul unpacks this clearly, this concern that he has. 1 Timothy 5.11. Talking about the widow's list. Refuse to enroll younger widows... For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And that's, that's Paul's concern. Um, ladies, especially the older women, how are you conducting yourself? Are you conducting yourself with dignity and with reverence? Are you acting like a slave of Christ, like a blood-bought daughter of Christ? Or are you going around sharing the latest gossip? Um, it's a temptation for all of us here. Paul's singling it out for the older women. The other concern, he says, so the blank there is self-controlled in words. Self-controlled in words. James tells us the tongue is very hard to tame. And yet Paul is hoping and exhorting that as we mature in our faith, as we grow in our faith, this is something more and more we have under control. We also learn what a stark contrast, how inappropriate, how offsetting it is for believers in Christ to be gossips, to be slanderers. We don't tend to think of that as big sin. We tend to think of the big sins as the things the other people do. Right? When's the last time you saw a million man march against gossip? You're not going to see it, right? course not, because we, we, we protest the sins they wrestle with far more aggressively than the ones we wrestle with. But biblically, division, things that create division, things that create offenses, they're at the top of the list of things to watch out and deal with. So self-controlled in words. Next, self-controlled in passion. It says, not, um, not a slave to much wine. Not a slave to much wine. Literally enslaved. By the way, this is the biblical picture for addiction. We, we have an AA meeting that meets here in our church. And culturally, we talk about addiction, which is a helpful metaphor. But biblically, the picture is slavery. Um, the words literally say, not having been enslaved by wine. And for those who've struggled with this, you know the notion of slavery. And, and Christ has called us for freedom. And so again, what a, what a terrible contrast that is for people who claim to be freed sons and daughters of Christ to be brought into slavery to something else. How disconcerting, how um, unhelpful it is when those who should be leading the way in, in wisdom and godliness are, are getting pulled aside by these types of things. If you struggle with that, there's hope, there's grace. But I just want to encourage the women here to, to, to free yourself from anything that would enslave there's all sorts of things that can enslave. Biblically, alcohol is sort of the paradigmatic picture of any enslaving thing. This would cover other drugs, painkillers, anything. Alcohol is sort of the, the picture for all of that. And, and the concept here, is, again, is self-controlled impassions. You're not brought into slavery to something. You're, you're acting in reverent, godly behavior, not in slander, controlling your words, and not 
enslaved to your passions and lusts. And fourth, teachers of what is good. I love this. Um, back when we were in 1 Timothy 2, we dealt with Paul's instruction that he would not allow women to teach men in the church. He won't allow women to be pastors and elders. And Many in the modern church today don't like that. But I think it's wonderful here that he doesn't tell the older men to be teachers. I think that probably might be assumed. But here, he singles the older women out to be teachers of what is good. And as we're about to cover this, you're going to find out that Paul wants the older women teaching the younger women and all the children. That's, that's three-quarters of the church right there. Women are to be teaching and involved actively in teaching and discipling three-quarters of the body of Christ. So don't let someone tell you that Christianity squashes women or Paul's against women. That's nonsense. They're to be teachers of good. This is probably a word that Paul invented, good teachers, teachers of goodness. And in our next point, we'll sort of go on to unpack what that looks like and what that means. But this is a picture just to remind us of, the, of this dignified, godly woman. She's, she's behaving like someone who's constantly serving the Lord, like a, like a priest in a temple, reverently, purposely, dutifully, avoiding the sins of the tongue, as avoiding being controlled by her passions. And again, if you go back to chapter 1, we see why this is such a striking contrast with the culture, because Crete was anything but like this. Paul, again citing one of their own prophets, describing what the culture in Crete was like in verse 12 of chapter 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So the church is in a culture where ease, laziness, gluttony, it's a, it's a culture that celebrates the appetites. It's, it celebrates leisure, it doesn't, doesn't celebrate honesty. That's why this emphasis is on, is on nobility, respectability, self-control. The church should look different than the culture. The church should look more and more like Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul wants Titus to teach the older women to be, verse 3. Point two, training the younger women to be. So he wants these points sort of go in order. Teach the older women to be, training the younger women to be. Now it's interesting. Paul has commissioned Titus to teach the older men. He's commissioned Titus to teach the younger men. He's commissioned Titus to instruct the older women. But he wants the older women to be training the younger women. Suggests possibly that this is because Titus was younger, single. And also because the things that he's going to have Titus train, have the older women train the younger women would be virtually impossible for Titus to do. I'm going to warn you before we go in, this is this part of the instruction, Paul's instruction for the younger women, um, will probably offend some here. It certainly goes against the wisdom of our age. It certainly goes against the wisdom of the culture. But we're going to look at it and we're going to receive it as from God and trust that it is good. Um, we're going to trust that it is good. And so what are the older women to be training the younger women to do? That word for train, by the way, is really about causing someone to be sound in mind. It's not just a word for instruction. It's really a word for discipling and shaping, to be sound-minded. It suggests that the younger women, if they're listening to the culture, are not going to be sound-minded. If the culture Crete is creeping in to the church, the older women who are more mature, who are more godly, who have been walking with the Lord, need to come along to the help, to the aid of the younger women. And this is more than, you know, sending an email here and there. This is discipleship. This is training. 
And, and I want you to note that this isn't just for some gifted older women. I'm not saying there won't be exceptions, but it seems to be that Paul assumes by and large the norm for all women is as they mature, they become disciplers. So I want you to stop and think about that. This isn't just for some people. I want the older women training the younger women. In general, across the boards, this is an important ministry, and you're going to see it's important, and it's also difficult, and it's also something, as I said, the men will have a nearly impossible time to do. So what is it then that Paul wants the older women training, getting their, the young women's minds wrapped around? It comes in couplets, comes in pairs. I'm going to look at them one at a time. First, to be loving their husbands and children. Now, I find it striking. When I first read this, I found it very striking that Paul is enlisting, commissioning the older women to get busy discipling and teaching the younger women. And at the very top of the list is to love their husbands and love their children. Now, in our culture, that would, most people would think, the thing that comes most easily. Largely because we have a very passive Greek notion of love. It's typified in the notion of Cupid with the arrow. You don't shoot yourself with an arrow, you get shot, Right? And so our culture views love as just something that just happens. And, you know, I couldn't help it. And, you know, this thing's bigger than the both of us. And, and we have all this language to justify falling in love. And, and I'm sure that happens. It's our experience. But biblically, um, love is far more often viewed as a commitment of the will, an intention. It's, it's accompanied by emotion. It certainly is accompanied by emotion. But it's active. God loved us, not because of anything good in us, but because he determined to love us. And perhaps when you first met your husband or wife, it was that I fell in love, I couldn't help it. I know that that very closely describes my experience with Serena, but marriages will not hold together on that type of love. They won't last with that type of love. It takes Christian, determined, covenant love. Because God, of course, wants us to be more and more like him. And he's the God who looked at worthless, sinful unattractive people and said, I will love them and I will redeem them and I will do what it takes to beautify them and to bring them to me. And he calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And here, he's calling wives to be lovers of their husbands. And so initially in marriage, it might be easy, it might take no work, but for those of us who've been married for more than a couple months, you know that eventually it starts taking more and more work to maintain love. Again, C.S. Lewis had a very helpful point here. We tend to think of love as the thing that keeps marriage going. Love is the thing that protects and preserves marriage. Exactly the opposite. Marriage is the institution that preserves love. Um, and so you've got to commit to this. You've got to work at this. It also assumes that this isn't easy. It takes training. The, if you're having a hard time here today loving your husband, if you find that difficult, Paul, Paul expected you might. And he expects that you need help. And older ladies here, if, if, this, is, this is a great way that you can be of service. This is something you can disciple and train in that I can never do, that the men here can never do. Help those who are in marriage, who are struggling, train, teach, model how to love your husband, how to keep your heart passionate for your spouse. Now elsewhere, husbands are told to love their wives. This isn't a one-way street. This is a two-way street. Today, we're just looking at the women. But this, this is important. How many marriages fall apart because people fall out of love? And yet Paul wants the older women training, discipling, mentoring the younger women precisely so that they will be lovers of husbands. And next, lovers of children. 
Now, if, if the first one seemed odd, the second one surely is odder still. Who needs to be taught to love their kids, you think? I think biblically, everyone. Because again, biblically, love is so much more than just warm feelings. And so many people meaning to do well, meaning to love their children, don't. They don't. I'll suggest a simple thing to show that our culture needs help in loving their children. One practical step in loving your children is don't kill them. I don't mean that as a joke at all. How much does our culture not love their children when we have as many abortions in our country as we have had? Yeah, we need to train our young women to love their children, to view them as a blessing, not a curse, not a problem to get, be gotten rid of, but a gift to be received from the Lord. And that starts at the top. It starts with the older women. Do, we, do, do you speak about, do you model children as a blessing or a burden? Because the little ones will be listening and watching. And, and again, this takes training. And, and children are wonderful when they're newborn, but when you've got three or four and they're running around and you're not sleeping and they're fighting constantly, you need help to love your children. <laughs> right? You do. You need help. And again, this isn't stuff Paul expects a younger woman to figure out in a corner on their own. So listen up again, older ladies. Love, mentor, disciple, train, teach, model the younger women. They need your help. Younger women, look to those who are more advanced in the faith for help. Don't struggle on your own. This stuff is hard. Of course it is. Marriage is hard. Child rearing is difficult. Get help. Second pair. Self-centered, self-controlled and pure. Self-controlled and pure. And this speaks of inward and outward holiness. That word for self-controlled really is more about the mental notions of a controlled mind and thought life. Um, and pure, I think the pairing notions, the outside and the inside. Inwardly, their mind is um, self-controlled. It's not going after whatever passion their heart has. It's directed. And outwardly, their actions are pure and holiness. And now we get to the one that our culture really isn't going to like. Working at home and good. That's what it says. Look it up in the Greek. You know what it means? It means working at home. That's what it means. Now, let me preface this with a few comments. This is not some law. Let me just start saying what this is not. This is not a law that Paul is commanding every woman to work at, be a, be a homemaker. And if you're not doing that, you have a job outside of the home, you're somehow in sin and disobedient. That is not what's going on here. Again, already we've noticed that Paul is speaking to married women. Not all women get married. What, what Paul's addressing is the norm. He's painting in a broad brush. He's dealing with what normally happens. Normally, younger women, when they become adults, they marry. Those marriages normally produce children. Doesn't always happen. Paul isn't dealing with those exceptions. Other places he does. Go to 1 Corinthians 7, and you'll take things case by case by case by case. But this is painting in broad brushstrokes. But that said, the norm, and the norm in the world up until about 50 years ago was that marriages generally produced children, and when children were produced, generally, normally, the woman was primarily raising the children working at home. And our culture has really pushed back against this, really pushed back against this. Um, I just want to make the observation that prior to affordable, dependable birth control. This wasn't even a discussion topic. Uh, the world that we live in now, where these things are 
turned upside down can only exist in a world where there's dependable, affordable birth control. Which isn't to say that that's wrong, but for those who champion the women's rights movements and think it was a great evil keeping women in the home and, and, and tying them to the home and that, that it's a great good virtue that now they can pursue careers, I'm just very suspicious of technology-dependent morality. I'm very suspicious of morality that depends on technology. Because this wasn't an option. It just wasn't possible 60 years ago. It's not to say it's wrong. It's not to say working outside of the home is wrong. But the Bible does assume this is the norm. And I'll suggest one other thing. If you go to Genesis 3, and you don't need to turn there, but you think of the curse. What was the man's curse in relation to the sphere of work? His toil will be hard. What was the woman's curse in relationship to childbearing? And so I'm not saying there aren't reasons to work outside of the home, but I would say this to, to the women here. I, I don't know why you'd be so eager to not only have your own curse, but to share in your husband's as well. Because he's never going to be able to share in yours. <laughs> amen and amen, right? Okay. Now, what does this mean then? What does this mean? This means that the woman's first sphere of responsibility, her first area of ministry, her highest area of ministry, is in the home. Now, you go to Proverbs 31, and the Proverbs 31 woman is not just in the home. She's out looking at fields, and she's buying them, and she's doing business, and that's great. I just want to speak to the, the wisdom of this age that says such things are demeaning and beneath women. If, if you're tempted to despise and look down on making a home, being a wife, being a mother, as, as somehow less fulfilling, less dignified, less valuable, that is a lie from the pit of hell that our culture is selling. Um, and when you're on your deathbed, when you go to see the Lord, you will not be looking back, and no man will either, looking back to the crucible of where they made disciples and where their most valuable time was spent will not be in the workplace. No man or woman. It'll be in the home. We've already seen the priority of the home for elders, right? How's their marriage? How are their kids? It's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. It's equally important for both men and women as we assume our varied roles. So Paul's assuming that they're working at home. And, and again, in the context, it's being busy, not going from house to house, idlers, gossips, drinking, conducting themselves reverently, conducting themselves with a controlled tongue, loving their husbands, learning to love their children, learning to view as ministry and a beautiful thing, being a homemaker, making a home. And that's not to say that's all they can do. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong in having a job or a career or anything. But this is the center point. This is, this is the non-negotiable. I'll make one other observation. Um, even if the Lord doesn't give you children, even if the Lord doesn't give you a husband, you still need to be getting ready and preparing to be training the next generation. Because remember, Paul just blanketly says, I want all of the older women training the younger women. So even if, in the Lord's wisdom and providence, you don't have a husband, you don't have children, he still wants you to take part in. And you need to still think of being preparing for, raising up, training that next generation. Next, submissive to their own husbands. And again, it's back-to-back, point C and D are the ones the culture is not a fan of. And with the time we have, I'm just going to, we've looked at this before, that God in the Trinity, there was an ordering. And I want to make this point again clearly. In the Trinity, we worship a God who is three persons, exists 
simultaneously as three people, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in value and in dignity and in being, they are equal. The Father is no more God than the Son, right? And yet, the ordering of the Trinity is such that there is structure. The Father commands, the Son obeys. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. So what we see in the Trinity is a community of equality based on love that has ordering. And then in Genesis 2, when God says, let us make man in our image, he makes a community of equality built on love with ordering. One of the ways we image God is in the ordering of marriage. When God wanted to image himself, he made not a man, not a woman, but a married couple. There is no marriage ceremony in Genesis 2. Adam says, ah, that's, that's my wife. We're married. Somehow they were made married. And God's glory is more fully displayed in that ordering, that relationship of equality, glued together by love, with ordering, than it is in any other place. And so it's sacred ground that we walk on when we want to start messing things around and redefining things and tweaking things, because the glory of God is at stake. And I'll tell you another lie. The lie that somehow to be submissive to someone means that you're inferior is a lie. If that's true, then and if it's somehow demeaning, if it's somehow a negative thing to be submissive to someone, if that means you're less than them, you're inferior to them, it's a downer on you, then that must be true about the son for the father, right? But no. The son is to receive all praise and honor just as the father. The father's determined that all shall worship him and all shall honor him just as they worship and honor him, that somehow Jesus can gladly obey his Father with no diminishing of his glory, no diminishing of his integrity, no diminishing of his value. And so what is taught elsewhere in Scripture is taught here that God's ordering for marriages, and it's not saying all women need to submit to all men. It's very clear, wives submitting to your own husbands, your own husband. And you you get some say in who's your husband thankfully, in our culture. Um, so you get some involvement in that decision. But that's, that's what Paul wants the younger women to be focusing on, focusing on loving their husbands, loving their children, being holy inward and out, to, to be focusing first and foremost on the ministry they have in their own homes and to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, the reason why this is so important and the reason why I'm stressing this, the reason why I dare not kibby on any of this is because what Paul says is at stake in all of this. That's point three. For the word of God to be honored. For the word of God to be honored. What is at stake in whether or not the younger women are being discipled to do this? What, is, what hangs in the balance if we fail to do this? If we simply say, well, you know, Paul, this, this, I hear this all the time from, from a college down the street, that well, this is just Paul's day, and Paul was kind of bigoted after all, and, you know, you make the best you can with it, but Jesus is all about love and people, and so we just sort of ignore this. If we do that, if we view this as outdated, if we sort of just maybe rip this page out of our Bible or just sort of ignore it, what will happen, Paul says in verse 5, is that the word of God will be reviled. It will be blasphemed. That is what is at stake. So we dare not... We dare not disregard this. 
no matter how countercultural this is, no matter how unpleasant this may be to some ears, no matter how difficult this is, we dare not put it aside because the honor of the word of God is at stake. Now, that's what Paul says. I just want you to notice that. I want the older women to teach the younger women, and then there's the content, so that the word of God will not be reviled. So how does that work? How, how does younger women and wives embracing or resisting Paul's instruction, how does that lead to the word of God being reviled? Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans 2, I think we can see another example of how this works. And while you're turning there, just want you to note that Paul doesn't say that this only applies for, for women married to Christian men, godly men, obedient men. This is just what Paul, what God wants women and wives relating to their family in any and every circumstance. So, Romans 2, where Paul is, is here rebuking or convicting the would-be religious person in verses um, 23 to 24, he writes, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And the way the, the reasoning works is this. The world, and here's the first blank, is watching. The world is watching. And so, in, in the example in Romans, when Jews preach the law and then live lives that break the law, the world watches and said, Hey, but you said to do this and you're doing that. That doesn't line up. That doesn't work. You're a hypocrite. The word hypocrite means to speak under a mask. It's back from drama in Greece where they have like the happy face on. And under the happy face, you might be frowning. You're presenting one thing and you're in reality another. And so you're preaching the law and you're breaking the law. And the world watches and the world mocks and scoffs and God is blasphemed. So that's what's going on here. The argument assumes that where the gospel comes, where people make professions of faith, where people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, when their lives don't change, when they keep looking like the culture, when they, and here it's zoomed in, zeroed in specifically on marriage and the family, when their marriages and their family looks no different, the culture scoffs and mocks. Now, I'll give you an example of how this happens today. Um, I'm sure no one here is unaware of the recent advances in the agenda for gay marriage and the, the battle that's been going on over that. And sadly, sadly, the American church in general, and I know there are pockets of exception, but the American church in general over the last 40 or 50 years has modeled the world's divorce rate exactly. The American church has shown no difference, no differentiation from the culture in our viewing of marriage as sacred. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are churches and pockets where that's not the case, but in a whole broad stroke sense, that's true. So how hollow then does the culture view us suddenly turning around and saying, no, no, this is important, this is sacred. You can't mess with this. They look at us and they say, you hypocrites. You haven't been treating marriage as sacred for 40, 50 years. All of a sudden it's important, all of a sudden this is crucial. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm for marriage as God defines it, but I understand why the church doesn't have much cultural traction when it speaks to the issue. 
The word of God can be blasphemed because of our failure to obey. And the culture is watching, the culture observes, and then when we speak, the culture mocks and scoffs. And to some degree, I understand why. I understand why. So it matters. There's a lot at stake here. Our testimony, the testimony of the gospel is at stake here. Let me show you positively how this can work in a good way, not just making it negative. Go to, go to 1 Peter 3. The world is watching for good or for ill. We've just considered how the world watching can lead to bad things if our conduct is not holy. But I want to put in front of you that much good can be done through a godly woman, a woman of the word, submitting to the word out of reverence for God. Much good can be done. First Peter 3, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you see that? what's, What's the best evangelistic strategy for an unbelieving husband? A godly life. This is, this, this is all bigger than us. It's not just about you and it's not just about me. My actions have ramifications and consequences. The world is watching. The body of Christ is watching. Husbands and wives are watching. And, and you ladies, you may be in a tough spot and the thought notion of submitting to your husband, honoring him, loving him, might be distasteful. It might be very, very difficult. I'm certain that is the case in, in, in some circumstances here, but it's bigger than just you. And the best strategy that God has for winning your husband, for the gospel to capture his heart, is a chaste, fearful, respectful, holy life modeled in front of him. It's the best apologetic. It's the best defense of the faith. Which brings us to our final point. This is because sound living confirms sound doctrine. Sound living confirms confirms sound doctrine. Again, Paul's logic is that people look to the fruit the tree bears to determine the quality of the root. So here comes the church with this new teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Roman pantheon with many gods. They say, no, there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. This is the only way to God. And this gospel brings forgiveness and this gospel brings power to obey and power to be transformed. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've been given not a spirit of slavery, but of sonship. And so when we act that way, and when people change, and when lives are transformed, and when people who are slaves to alcohol break free, and when people who are grumpy become loving, and when people who are impatient become patient, that transformation, that fruit, confirms the teaching of the gospel. That's the logic Paul's assuming. So negatively, the world's watching, and the danger is they will scoff and mock if we don't conform to what God says. But positively, we can confirm the gospel. Look how Paul says this a little later in in Titus chapter 2, and we'll get there in in a few weeks. He says, Slaves, verse 9, be submissive to your own masters in everything, 
Um, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They may dress it up. They may make it look beautiful. They may make it look valuable. They may make it look powerful. We, we, can, we can't alter the doctrine. We can't, we can't change that. But we can sure make it look beautiful. We can sure dress it up. I think the message title for two weeks now will be Dressed Up Doctrine. Because um, we, can, we can adorn it, or we can make it look ugly. And we can make it look like a heavy load and burden. That, that remains in our power. So this is important. This is what God would have women to be and to do. This is, our, this is your marching orders, ladies. For those of you who are, who are older and growing older, I just encourage you to, to view discipleship, actual discipleship is a vital and crucial ministry that's not just for some people gifted with various gifts, but for across the boards, the women in our church. You younger women, married, looking to get married, you're gonna need help. I know I have. I've been glad to receive it from men in this church, and you're gonna need help. Look to the older ladies. Don't, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't struggle alone. If you're struggling to love your husband, if you're struggling to love your kids, if you're struggling to, to view submission as a good thing, get help. Seek help. Don't try to figure this out all on your own. We're a body. We're a family. We're a community. We're here to help each other. And the good news of the gospel, and I'm going to call the worship team up for a final song. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to do this in our own power. What God is looking for is a willingness to obey and the power comes out of the gospel, comes out of that new birth. This is why I said you need to be born again. You need to know the Lord. You need to be saved for any of this to work because only then will God give you the power and the strength to obey. So he promises to give us the strength. We just need the willingness to obey. We need the willingness to not refuse but to receive with thanksgiving what he has for us. We're gonna sing our final song now. If you'd please stand. We're gonna sing, I stand in awe of you.